1: peace y'all this is superstition make sure you subscribe and download the library rap podcast the hip-hop interviews with tim einacle it's currently my favorite podcast and it will be yours as well if you download or subscribe to it make sure you check it out man library rap tim einacle yeah 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 hey yo this is big daddy Kane. And you're listening to another hot interview with Tim Einenko.
3: When I interviewed Reggie Osei, a.k.a. Combat Jack, back in June 2017, he told me what had made Chris Lighty so attractive for the upcoming season of Mogul was that his life trajectory had mirrored the hip-hop culture he loved. Mogul, his podcast series about Chris Lighty, had been released, and I was thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to him about it. I met Reggie for our interview at a coffee shop near Union Square in New York City. I was nervous because he was Combat Jack, we shook hands, and I thanked him for agreeing to be interviewed. Instead of saying, you're welcome, he said, no, thank you for doing this. It was a small but incredibly generous gesture. My nervousness abated. He offered to buy me a cup of coffee, which I politely declined, and he purchased a cup of tea for himself. We sat down and began the interview.
4: Thank you, man. What's up, internets? What's going on, man? In
3: October of 2017, Reggie learned he had cancer. On December 20th, 2017, the hip-hop community, the podcast community, lost a legend. Reggie Ose, a.k.a. Comet Jack, was 53 years old. The following is my interview with him for 2017. Comet Jack, thank you. Christopher? Chris. Chris. Lady. right. where were you born? Bronx, New York. I lived in the epicenter of hip-hop.
1: Yo, baby Chris, pass me the keys to the car. I'm running late. Mama knoff it wall, pass it, tap it, and then crack.
3: Of a mic. My next guest is a former the hip-hop attor- music attorney and executive and also the former managing editor of The Source. He's the host of The Combat Jack Show and now host of a new documentary series, Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty. He's Reggie Osei, a.k.a. Combat Jack. And I want to welcome him to the library with Tim Hinekelle. Welcome, Reggie.
4: Thank you, man. What's up, Internets? What's going on, man? Thank you so much
3: for doing this. Um, so I want to start with um, so Mogul, The Life and Death of uh, Chris Lighty is obviously a lot different than the combat jack show yes i want to talk about you know go more into it but how do you approach something like the mogul versus approaching an interview uh, for combat jack
4: i mean it's the preparation is it's 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 two different worlds you know combat jack show i stay up for a couple you know I, i prepare for a couple of hours you know, read as many magazine articles as many interviews as many things as I can find online and after like three or four hours, I'm prepared you know and I just go in and it's a one on one and it's that's it not that much pre- pre production definitely not that much if any post production Mogul is completely different you know it's it's first and foremost pinpointing who our subject is going to be we didn't just pick just pluck Chris Lighty out of the air like we had a lot of Conversations about like who's gonna who's gonna be the best representative for this for this series, particularly season one, um, and then you know just trying to map out like where do we start? Do we start from his birth? Do we start from when he starts you know lugging records for a Red Alert? Do we start when he's at the height of his career and he does the Vitamin Water deal with Fifty Cent? Do we start you know from his suicide or from, you know do, where do we start? And then interviewing not even interviewing but doing like pre-interviews with people that knew lighty or were part of his circle and trying to determine who do we speak to who do we speak to that that was you know close to his marriage who do we speak to that was close to his upbringing who do we speak to with regard to who he grew up with you know just like who were his enemies who were you know How do we reach his mom? How do we reach his family? Like starting out with something like this, a story like this, particularly with Chris Lighty. Chris was such a private person and um, things spiraled out of control. And so it was really important for us to get the blessings from his family, particularly his mother. And that was a daunting task because you know, I would say for most of our journey, she wasn't with it, you know, and it wasn't until we got closer and closer to the end and we kept sending her samples of what, you know, interviews that we had gathered and like the narrative that we were developing that she eventually like she eventually gave us her blessings. But it's just this, this, this journey where you start off. It's like, you know, it's like embarking on like a overseas, like for your first time trying to find like, you know, El Dorado and not knowing if it even exists or not. And you're just on this journey and it's just a, it's like a marathon and you don't know where you're going, but eventually it starts coming together. I mean, that's I, kind of like long winded in a sense, but that's, that, that's, that's it in a nutshell.
3: When I was listening to the series, I realized that, I mean, it's not just about Chris Lighty. It's also kind of in a way it's, it's, a, it's, it's taking us through a history of hip hop and hip hop culture. Um, was that purposeful? And then I guess kind of t- uh, extending on your answer, like, w- I guess why Chris Lighty would be the vehicle to not just talk about him, but also talk about the birth of the culture and what it means.
4: I think what made Chris Lighty so attractive for, for, for this season of Mogul is that his, his, his life, his, his rise coincided with the rise of hip-hop. I mean, this guy grew up in the ground zero of hip-hop, you know? Like, he looked out his window and saw the pioneers of hip-hop as a kid, like the Cool Hercs and the Grandmaster Flashes and even the Red Alerts. So he grew, he grew up as a kid, like, enjoying this, this, this phenomenon, this cultural phenomenon in his backyard, and as it progressed with regard to becoming a business, this dude was in sync. He was, like, lockstep with the progression of the culture. And when, it, when we went through the, you know, the, the the heyday of the 1990s and, like, the big deals and, of course, the affiliated, like, puffy, shiny suits and he was there, you know, going into the new millennium, you know, the whole advent of 50 Cent and, once again, the vitamin water deal. And even, you know, there were a lot of stuff that we left on the cutting room floor, like his initial discussions with Drake's crew about becoming his, you know, the possibility of him managing Drake or... You know, even conversations about how he, not just Lee or Cohen, but he himself came up with the concept of the 360 deal, which is so prevalent in the music industry today. Like, this guy was the perfect figure to launch this show because he was hip-hop in a sense. To the very end, he was hip-hop. Like, the elaborate hip-hop style, you know, wedding and just everything was just still so entrenched in hip-hop. And he just made the, pr- I think it, it made sense. And it, it, it also brought added value that we could delve into the history right. of hip-hop, which was really fun.
3: I want to talk more about Chris, but, you know, you, you approach uh, different ventures. Yeah. Um, when you do stuff like this, are you approaching it out of kind of... A labor of love and then it just so happens to raise the bar and whatever you're doing are you consciously trying to raise the bar no matter what you have your hands on
4: you know in my prior careers I think the approach was quote unquote raising the bar whereas you know in this world of podcasting right now the combat jack show my involvement with the loudspeakers network uh, is definitely um, coming from a place of passion definitely coming f- from a place of passion. And my experience has shown me that, you know, whenever I approach something from that perspective, like I'm not necessarily thinking about the end result as opposed to like how much enjoyment I'm going to get out of it, how much fulfillment I'm going to get out of it. And knowing that if I'm as fulfilled from doing something that my audience will be as fulfilled, you know? Yeah, so it's yeah. like, so Yeah, I I definitely, like, you know, say raise the bar. But this was, like, definitely, like, I I love this project. I think it was very close to me. And it was more important that we get it right. More important that, you know, not necessarily concerned about the impact, but the the focus on doing it right. And if we do it right, then eventually it'll raise the bar. So it's it's, it's, it's the passion part that comes first. I sense something about Chris with his character. You know, about how he come across with a business sense. And when him and I talk, I listen to his lingo. And when I listen to his lingo, it's like, this guy got something, dear. Red was right. So when did
3: you first hear of Chris Lighty and then when you first heard him or heard of him, was that like right away? Did you start following him or did you just kind of hear of him here and there? And then eventually realized he was like going to be a big thing.
4: You know, I first heard of Chris Lighty when I was still in law school and, um, you know, was really into the jungle brothers. You know, I had, I love their first album, um, straight out the jungle and, you know, looking at videos between, you know, the jungle brothers and, Boogie Down Productions, you know, KRS-One, which is, like, one of my favorite rappers. And just looking at these videos and just seeing this one common guy in the background in all these videos, and this guy is actually kind of easy to miss. But after three or four times, like, seeing him in, like, different... Like, you know, we didn't have an abundance of music videos in the late 80s as you do now so it's like yeah. particularly hip-hop videos yeah. and so when you're looking at them you, you're just taking it all in and i think i saw chris lighty in these videos before i actually heard of him i think the first time i actually heard of him was him mentioned in uh, a tribe called quest song but it was like who is this guy uh, i eventually got into the industry and i started hearing about this guy more Chris Lighty does this with Rush, you know, with, with Rush Management, Violator Records. And then I actually met Chris Lighty. We had done a couple of deals. And, you know, just the thing about Chris Lighty is that he, he definitely, the, the theme that you hear a, a lot in Mogul is that this guy was a chameleon. And I remember one night hanging out with Chris Lighty. Um, we only hung out, hung out once at this party. And I remember even then walking away. Asking myself, like, who is this guy? Because he really didn't give us, he didn't really give me anything other than this guy was a player in the industry, he was really serious, he's well connected, and he just knew how to move in a room, but that was it. So, and you know, knowing, you know, having clients being involved with violator management and doing deals with them and just seeing how, you know, this guy was really efficient in building stars or taking care of his artists, but that was really it. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't an intimate an intimate knowledge or intimate relationship with this guy. This guy was just like one of us in the industry, you know, and then you hear about the vitamin water deal and you're like, oh shit, like this guy, how far is this guy going? And then a couple of years later, boom. And it's like, what the fuck happened? You know, but it was just like, once again, like him being lockstep with hip hop and me just being an avid fan from day one and just like, Learning about this guy because he was just always at the right places at the right time.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar forty nine. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Ba da ba ba ba.
3: I mean, as mentioned, this is also this is a passion for you. Um, I mean, you, you know, you. you you, have, you you know it's like you have a love affair with hip hop, right? I mean, yeah. it's like, um, interesting. A great thing about the the series is that and and, you, and something you mentioned. He goes, you know, Chris used hip hop to escape from like an abusive home and violence on the street. So I was always wondering, what what did what drew you to hip hop? Why did you like? What was it? Uh, were you trying to escape from something, or was it? Just I mean,
4: like, I mean, not necessarily trying to escape something as. You know, I mean, my experience with hip hop, one of my best friends growing up. Frank Ford lived down the block from me. Frank was a little older than me. I was still in high school. We were both still in high school, but Frank was like a couple of years older than me. And Frank had this uh, foot uh, messenger job in the city. And at the time, I didn't go to this city that much. And the world was a lot bigger. So like going to like traveling from, from Brooklyn to Manhattan, you might, as well, you might as well have been traveling from like Brooklyn to Connecticut. And then even going to the Bronx, I was like oh, no, going yeah, to gonna, California, yeah. you know what I mean? So, but he kept telling me about, yo, you got to hear rap, you got to hear rap, got to hear rap because I guess he was hearing from it, hearing about it from his coworkers who were from Harlem and from the Bronx. And then one day I just, I'll, I'll never forget this day. It's like a sunny afternoon in July or June. 1979 comes home he, he has this big boom box and he slips in this cassette and it's uh, Grandmaster Flash it's a, it's, a, it's a recording of a live performance of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious 5 and I hear it and we're all fucking going crazy and at least I, mean, I knew at that moment um, and there's so many different reasons why just hearing this art form for the first time and it's just like you get it You know, whereas so many people at the time didn't get it. Um, And then hearing the beats that we were hearing from, like, all of our... All, like, the block parties and the the park jams, but hearing people that sounded so much like us. Like, they sounded like our peers. The language, the slang. It was, like, this emerging, like, way of talk. Like, this hip-hop talk that these guys just had it down, you know, down pack. And, you know, when you look at some of the other, some of our other idols at the time, like the Michael Jacksons, like the Princes, like, you know, the Disco Stars or Stevie Wonder, they were always out of our league or out of our class. You know what I'm saying? Like, we could only get but so close to them where these are the guys that for the most part dressed like us, talked like us, um, rap like us, even though we weren't rappers. You know what I'm saying? And it was just it was just so transformative so it wasn't necessarily escape as much as you know being so vulnerable as a teenager and trying to find out who you are this this was like okay this is who I'm going to be it's like I'm going to be hip hop i had no choice you know what i mean right, yeah. right. i got sucked in so it was less of a of 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 escape and more destiny, in a sense, I was I was destined to be a part of this thing.
3: A great thing about the Chris slidey story is that, yeah, and, and just I mean, I don't, you don't, I obviously you can't understand what the man's thinking at all times, but and or what he sees. But there's this great story about uh, how Warren G uh, and Chris Lighty saw, like, was like I saw saw potential in him, right, and. And, and one thing I wanted to turn back to you is that you were kind of one of the early adopters to Westside Gun and Conway. And now they're blowing up like crazy. What did you see in them that maybe some people just did not? Like, how did you how did you know so early that they were going to be a big deal?
4: You know, it's, I guess when you have a, and I'm not in any way saying like I'm an A&R guy, I'm a creative guy, but okay, so... This is, this, is, this is 2017. I've been listening to hip-hop since 1979. And it's very easy throughout, throughout, the, throughout the, this run of years. There's been many times where it's just like, is rap dying? Is it a dying art form? Is right. it dead? Um, nothing I'm hearing excites me. Everything's been done before. Um, it's not exciting. Uh, okay, everybody likes it. It sounds good in a club. But am I going to really sit down and put on my headphones and study it like I used to back in right. the day before the information age when we had time to study our favorite albums right. or our not so favorite albums, you know? And I had hearing, I had been hearing about West Side Gun and Conway for a long time. Like a lot of my peers were like, are you fucking with them? Are you fucking with them? I was like, I don't. I associated Westside with, like, some, you know, New Cali, like, gangbanger type. And I was like, eh. And then one day I just decided to put them on the headphones. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, we're in 2017, but it takes me back to, like, this kind of like this Raekwon ghost face kind of era. And then just the abstract Ab- abstractedness of like the production it, it just it was just kind of like otherworldly yeah even though it was grounded in like east coast like like gangster rap it was just it took me someplace else and that that that's what it is going back to your earlier question the minute i put on west side gun and conway it was an escape mm. right you know what i'm saying like instantly i didn't have to it, i didn't have to think through it it was just like oh shit they're taking me somewhere right
3: Oh, you're like, I haven't, or they're taking, like me, they're
4: taking me towards. They're taking me to the past, but not necessarily because it's now and going into the future. So right. it's kind of like this weird, like it's almost timeless. Right, right, timeless
3: East Coast. Yeah, so yeah, when I heard West Side, I was like, totally California, yeah, right? And yeah. Buffalo, New York. Yeah, yeah definitely, <laughs> definitely.
4: I remember being in the in the UK. I was in the UK last summer and playing West Side Gun a lot. And my mates out there were like, "We don't get," it. and I was like, "Maybe you wouldn't get it because you're not from that that specific time mm-hmm. in the East Coast, and you're not from there, so it's kind of like right. harder for you to adapt." But this is kind of like it's um, it's kind of like futuristic nostalgia.
3: Yeah. Uh, we're speaking to our Reggie Osei, and uh, has a new documentary out, "Mogul: The Life and Death of Chris Lighty." I want to, Reggie, I want to turn back to the doc. Um, you know, A Tribe Called Quest, L.O. CooJay, Missy Elliott, Busta Rhymes, Fat Joe, 50 Cent, or, you know, just name a few artists that were under the Chris Lighty belt. Nice. Um, during your research, I mean, these guys are all all-star caliber artists. They're all legends known, right? Um, did you get further insight into what uh, Chris looked for in an uh, artist? And kind of like, how did, it seemed like these, all these artists have longevity, too. Uh, they're not going to be one-hit wonders. Uh, was there any insight into him doing that? Like, did he do that purposeful? Was he looking for that one hit wonder just to make the buck, and or was he doing
4: longevity? I think, you know, like I said, like like you said, like not knowing Chris's thought process, um, but you can look at his, you know, his his performance and his average, you know, his performance average, and I think he was looking for artists that he saw he was able to provide. Some type of longevity too with regard to their careers. He wasn't c- so much concerned about their music as, you know, and he was very passionate about the music as much as how he can translate their music and their career into their brand. Like, Chris was one of the first, like, he was one of the first adapters of, you know, brand. Like, you know, we hear that now and so cliche, but he was like, how can we make this? A brand that you will be able to feed your family, you know, with for like a long time. That, I think that was his concern. Like, I think he had been tired. He had come from the era where there were so many one hit wonders, and because he loved the, the 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 culture so much, and you know, he had this way of really um, enduring himself to each and every one of his clients. There's this one interview where we had. With Nori Noriega and Noriega, we it didn't make the it didn't make the show, but Noriega was like you know um, Harry Gold from um, Entourage and how he just loved Vinny Chase like Vinny was like his favorite client. Well, Chris made everyone feel like Vinny Chase. (laughs) You know, Nori's like I felt like Vinny Chase, and Nori even shared like Chris had this commitment with Nori like Nori was a knucklehead. Nori had this big hit record, you know, he didn't really, you know, he really was just like a loose cannon, and Chris was like, listen, just, just fuck with me until I make you your first million, and then you'll get it, and then Nori's like, he made me my first million, and then I got it, but to hear someone say, like, he was dedicated to getting me past this, you know, one hit one that you might not survive, he's like, I got you a million, now you're on your feet right you know what i mean so it's just like he had this sense of commitment the sense of mission um to his clients i think he was very concerned about you know the music industry's past with regard to black artists and how you know we create this great music and all of a sudden you know we we're, 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 we're left on the sidelines and we're not we're forgotten and he was he didn't want his clients to be forgotten i mean he had this other thing too this other attraction too. I think the pariahs, or the quote-unquote pariahs, like the Fat Joe's, and particularly the Fifty Cents, like Fifty Cents in par- Fifty Cent in particular. This guy, who no one wanted to touch, like this guy was that impossible project. And Chris looked at it and he was like, "Oh, that—that's what I was born to do." Right. Is that normal?
3: <laughs> is that like a normal characteristic in any, I mean, I, hip-hop in particular, but in any music manager? I to... mean, you,
4: you tell me, like when we when we set out to do whatever in, endeavor we're, 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 we're focused on, I mean, part of it is like, yeah, we want the challenge, but we don't want to make it impossible. We don't want to put ourselves in danger. We don't want to make it harder than it should be. And I think Chris revelled in like, no one else can do this. Right. No one else is going to feel comfortable having to having to wear a bulletproof vest with 50 cent and knowing that at any moment, you know, you're, you're, you're a target. But yet, I, I see way beyond this. You know what I mean? It was just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, I mean, and, and you know, as history shows, like, almost no one wanted to touch 50. No one wanted to touch 50 because it was such... A great risk Not even just a financial risk But like Um, Life and death (laughs) Life and death You know And But Chris had this really And you hear You hear about it Throughout the story And we had so many more um, Interviews That talk about how Chris We all have this like um, We all have a tendency This reflex And when there's danger When there's Imminent danger We run from it But Chris had this Uncanny Like Talent He ran towards it You know Which I think is very rare.
3: And that also speaks a lot from the art. I mean, from the artist's perspective, if you have a manager who's willing to take a bullet, literally willing to take a bullet for you, I mean, why wouldn't you be loyal to them?
4: Of course. Like, I mean, I don't think he went out of his way to convince his clients that they should sign with him. But he had this way of making each and every one of them feel, not even feel because he was actually in the trenches with them, whatever their respective trenches were. Out of all his
3: artists, uh, as a fan for you, who had, the biggest, you think, who had the biggest impact on you? And then in the industry, who do you think had the biggest impact on the industry?
4: I mean, that's kind of difficult because there's so many different eras. And there's so many, I mean, probably the one that he worked with that has had the biggest impact on me was Diddy. Sean Diddy Combs, he managed Diddy for a while and you would think Diddy with his empire, why would Diddy need someone to manage him? But at some point when Diddy was, you know, definitely in full artist mode he needed someone to guide him and Chris Lighty was that guy and you know, looking back, nothing against Chris Lighty, nothing against anyone who were pioneers you know, from that era with regard to the music business but there's a sense of pride that I get from being in the same Era with Diddy because like he undoubtedly is one of the best. He's the best that did it from my era. Right, like right. Diddy is definitely like the greatest hip hop showman of all time. If you really look at his impact and still his current, you know, relevance in the culture. So definitely Diddy. Hello, um, Cool J. It comes from my era. Like Tribe Called Quest and the Extended Native Tongues collective. You know that that's such it's timeless like, like A Tribe Called Quest it's timeless I mean one of the stories we heard is how even with the lasting impact of Chris Slidy we had the opportunity to interview Mace Giant. from De La Sol and he talked about you know during the days leading up to his last days like he fought long and hard with Fife and Q-Tip it's like what the fuck guys like This is how you're gonna end your fucking run, like you're gonna, you're just, you're not gonna give us a classic. And he fought and he fought and he fought, and eventually a tribe called Quest committed to recording their 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 most recent album, which came out with this year, yeah, and was just an amazing album. And but you don't hear the backstory about how Chris, that's like Chris Lighty, making sure that they, particularly with Fife still alive, like that's, it's Chris Lighty.
3: Right, right. you know what I mean. Like that's. Is a manager usually involved with? I guess the product, the studio process. I mean, are they? Is that normal, or is that old school? It depends. It
4: depends on you know the the caliber of the manager. Like you know, there are a lot of managers out there still, from day one to now, that are still heavily involved in every aspect of their uh, client's career and life. You know, someone's having issues at home. The manager is there. You know what I'm saying? Like, if there's beef, the manager is there to squash it. You know? So, I think the best managers, I mean, I think that's a quality of the best managers. You know what I'm saying? So, it's not odd or it's not rare. But, of course, being the best is kind of rare. Right. You know what I mean?
3: I have to ask you about the DMX story, uh, because DMX is one of my favorite, his first album.
4: Yonkers what up?
3: Yeah, Yonkers. I used to work out to that thing every day.
4: It's a great workout. It's still a great workout CD.
3: The introduction itself. Um, You you say in it, um, you tell a story about how DMX punched uh, Lighty, and you say this kind of proves how far he came in, how Chris had come in his career. Can you just briefly talk about that story, but also, how did that show how far he came into his career?
4: I mean, first and foremost, I remember that night specifically. I was still in the music industry, and we didn't have the internet, so we didn't have Twitter or anything like that. But we did—we did have the Skytel two-way Motorola pages. (laughs) And I remember maybe like moments after it happened, like all of the attorneys in my office just started getting that buzz, like "Oh shit." DMX just punched Chris Lighty, and it was just like it wasn't. You know, it wasn't on the radio. It wasn't on you know mainstream media. But if you were in the industry, if you were within the the smaller circles within the industry, you were like, oh shit. So that night there was like this. It was just like very tense because no one knew what was going to ensue. Because what we did know is even though Chris was this established, successful businessman, you're like. Everyone who loved Chris loved him, you know what I'm saying, to the point that if he was in harm's way, they would step up. Right. So we heard rumors of, oh, shit, Buster's crew is looking for DMX. Oh, shit, Q-Tip even is looking for DMX, the violators. So it was just like, what the fuck is going to happen? Is DMX going to live it? Live to see Sun Out? Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, It was yeah. just this tense, tense yeah. thing. So when... I forgot who we interviewed, but when, when, I think it was Eric Nix, a couple of people, when we started discussing this, like, I remember the good folk at Gimlet was like, did this really happen? And they like, should we like, should we put our fact checkers on it? I was like, no, it really, it really happened because I remember that night. It was an event. Right. It was one of those events that you'll never forget. Yeah, yeah. And even though it's not that big or whatever, you never forget the night that that happened. If you were involved, if you were in that environment. Um, and I think it speaks to the fact, I mean, in terms of how far Chris came at that point. I'm sure there were barriers. I'm sure his his relationship with Def Jam. I'm sure the Leos. I'm sure a lot of people stopped him from responding immediately. And even you know, though there was an alleged manhunt after DMX, I'm sure you know you hear about you know maybe uh, Leor saying, "Look, this guy's a cash cow. You're a businessman. If there's bloodshed, if there's you know bodily harm." It's a, it's a lose-lose situation. Right. You, you, you just p- broke your tooth. And, and so this is another part that wasn't in the story. Lighty's first, re- most immediate response or reaction to him getting punched with, by DMX is like, I can't let my family see me like this. I can't let my family see me like this. And then Leroy arranged for him to go to like, some midnight specialist, <laughs> dentist. And then he comes out like an hour or two later with, you know, new teeth. So his kids don't know would never know. Um, so just that commitment to his family, like just a commitment to his daughter, Tiffany, like that relationship, like I don't want to her to see me like this. And then even him eventually, you know, having a cooler head and prevailing and saying, all right, DMX, you're good, but you have to pay me for this. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that, that comes a long way from the brawls at Union Square yeah, yeah. or at Latifah's party or, you know, wherever. It's just like, if I'm going to be this consummate businessman, then this is my biggest test. And how am I going to, you know, yeah. show how far I've, 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 I've matured?
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me.
3: One, one thing that's amazing, I think, about uh, Lighty is that I, I don't know, maybe he had uh, an audacity. I mean, something he would he would do something that if I feel like if a Joe Schmo did it for like their first job, they would be never they would be cast out of the industry, right? So like when he said to uh, Russell Simmons, "I'm not fucking with y'all." Is that something that, well, one, can that be done today in the music industry? Can you be an up-and-comer to say to uh, Russell Simmons, like, this is it? Or how did, like, why, did, why didn't this stop Chris Lighty's career, you know, these four words?
4: I mean, I think you got to look at the time. It was still a developing um, industry, and Russell was very young in the game. Russell probably didn't even care. Like Russell said it himself. Like at those those days, he was high as a kite. Right. So he doesn't even remember that encounter. Um, you know, one of the things that someone recent, like someone close to Lighty sent to me is like his response, his reaction to seeing Russell and Nels wasn't just a surf Like this guy comes from a deeply religious upbringing. He was like a Jehovah's Witness. So I guess even though he had experienced things that were weren't very Jehovah Witness like in hip hop. You know, being in a downtown scene and where there's where they're playing hip hop and there're not that many black people in the club and you're seeing snakes in the whole, t- whole night I'm sure it just it just triggered something about this is not holy. Right. And right. I'm now like I might be going into like sinful air. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it just challenged him a lot. But also I think it also speaks to you know Leo definitely was the mastermind with regard to recruiting lighting. And he recognized that this was a guy that, even though he wasn't polished, he had everything it took to to, to transform him into a into into a successful asset. I mean, into, into an asset and a successful businessman. I think Leor, knowing Russell and knowing how Russell might be off-putting to people like Lighty, it was really Leor that was like, "Dude, that's just fucking Russell."
3: just join us that's
4: Russell like Russell's one of a kind and he remains one of a kind so I think it was the time and I think it just speaks to the qualities that that Lighty had that made Lear want to recruit him regardless what his initial impression was of Russell
3: right uh, in the series, you uh, you explore the darker side of Chris Lighty, and you, you come across police reports on uh, domestic violence. Um, and you guys, I think, handled it really well. Thank you. Um, that was really tough. It seemed it. And so my, my question is, how, as a fan of his, how emotionally tough was that for you when you saw those reports? And then I imagine those interviews, follow-up interviews with, you know, whoever, with the family, whoever, how tough was that to go through
4: Um. you know I mean I think you asked me earlier the difference between you know working on a combat jack show and working on mogul and I think you know that what you just brought up was really the big difference and that you know not saying that my the combat jack show was fluffy but I'm there to prop up yeah my, my and celebrate the accomplishments of my interview you know of my subjects and I'm not there to tear anybody down whereas I was really concerned that, you know, the information we found via the police reports would tear down uh, Lighty's legacy. So I was really concerned about that. Um, I was really concerned that, you know, knowing that Lighty was a very private person, and if he were alive, definitely wouldn't have approved of this project. I was like, am I betraying Lighty himself? And then just, you know, a little selfish, I was like am I putting myself in harm's way? You know what I'm saying? Like, we talk about DMX and knowing the people that still love Lighty, you know, right. just love Lighty, and just, like, am I betraying their confidence in them allowing me to do this story? Because a lot of people at a certain point felt comfortable with me doing this story. Like, am I betraying them? And so, you know, the arguments that we had, that I had with, you know, my Gimlet team, I was like, I don't want to do this. I didn't sign up to do this. And them like but it's part of you know journalism. Right. It's really part of like the integrity of being a true journalist and just that was really the 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 hardest part to overcome is like how do we do it? And um eventually when I was convinced that we had to do it, it was like, well, how do I do this? Like do I Make myself as vulnerable as I could be to just really convey to like his family and his loved ones, like, dude, I, I don't want to do this. Right. But we are like that was really it was like I don't want to do this, but we are. And I just it was it was just it was a rough it was a rough patch because I lived it like just not live it in my own personal life, but I lived like that emotional weight. Of having this information and having to do something, but feeling very uncomfortable moving forward. So it was it was tough, man.
3: Um, on December thirtieth, twenty twelve, uh, Chris Lighty killed himself. Yes, um, he was battling depression, uh, which in the document appeared to have surprised many people. Um, in the series, you guys talk about depression. Even Fat Joe talks about it. Yes, uh, it seems that in 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 hip hop. A lot of musicians are now talking openly in their music about depression, battling addiction. I mean, you have like Slaughterhouse Crew. Really, you know, Royce, Crooked Eye, Joe Ortiz are all um, not drinking any, You know, Joe Button. Joe Button. Uh, you know, so what's the difference between talking, but but, it, but also at the same time, it seems like it's, it's surprising when someone says they're depressed. So what's the difference between... Talking about your depression in music versus talking about your depression amongst your family.
4: Well, I think I think you know it's also the time. Um, I think there's more. It's not really broad. It's not as big as I'd like it to be, but there's more awareness of um, the issue of mental health, not only in the music industry but in 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 the black community as well. This is something that was very taboo. And just personally, I remember, you know, during my last days as an attorney um feeling very tired um feeling very heavy um waking up every day waking up every day and putting on my suit and taking that walk from my house to the subway and not feeling suicidal or anything but knowing that i was suffering and actually praying for that accident like the proverbial piano Snapping from like a rooftop or like some car jumping the curb just to take me out of my my and not knowing until very recently that I was probably suffering from some mild form of depression and so and just remembering also you know during those days when I was going through it, and particularly being just so tired and talking to my peers in the industry, like my my, my, my legal colleagues and saying dude I need a vacation I need a break and I'm like and them responding like what the fuck are you talking about we're making money you just need to fucking man up take some vitamins and stop talking that weak shit right yeah yeah right. you know what I mean so just having to deal with how people respond to you admitting that there's some type of thing that you're suffering through and them looking at you as you're weak or not you or that you're goofing off or fucking around and not doing the best that you can um we were just very guarded you know what i mean and i think you know the advent of 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 you know the information age and people like myself and Tackstone, like really talking and addressing mental issues and then of course artists always being on that you know on that on that, you know just being on that curve where they they're very aware of what they're going through and, and knowing why they self-medicated and why, you know, self-medication and heavy drug use and, you know, alcohol use is so prevalent in the arts, particularly in hip hop. And just like, this is an issue. So it's kind of like we're still learning about this and more people are talking about this and pe- more people are making this more aware to their peers and, you know, the the, the greater audience. But it's still pretty early in the day. Where we as a black community are dealing with mental issues, because it's almost as if, you know, throughout the centuries of our existence here, we haven't had the luxury of dealing with the trauma of slavery and Jim Crow and, you know, continued, you know, police oppression and even the shit that goes on in our community. You know, Um, had this amazing exchange, exchange with this young man. Two years ago, a couple of years ago, when I had a, 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 a bigger cast on a ComEd Jack show, there was definitely friction amongst us. And it was suggested that we have a therapist on, you know, for the ent- entertainment value, but also to address why we were so um, dysfunctional. And we had a therapist on, and it was only one episode, but she really helped our relationships at the time. And I remember this young man reaching out to me a couple of weeks later. And he was, I want to say he was from the West Coast. He was about 23 at the time. He was just thanking me because he, I think he was 17 years old. And he had been shot. You know, it was life or death. He survived. He pulled through. And as he was healing his home physically after he had gotten healed, he didn't want to come outside. At all. And eventually the block started teasing him, like, are you scared? You're scared to get shot again? Like, man up, little nigga. Like, just the shit you get. And then just, like, him dealing with that high level of post-traumatic, you know, stress disorder and not even knowing that he was suffering through major trauma. And hearing that episode and, like, he was like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. And... There's someone out there that I can be able to. When you hear that, and this goes on every day in Black America across the I nation. Even
3: Paramount talks about it. It's yeah, yeah. Spanish yeah to me exactly. But, yeah.
4: but when you hear someone that young talking about how they're how they're forced to ignore their mental trauma, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, right. You know, it's it's heartbreaking. So, you know, I'm really glad that more people, more artists. Um, I take it, you know, upon myself to discuss that this is a real issue.
3: Do you think, did Lighty does not talk about it? Or, I mean, do you, uh, do, you, do you imagine there was, I mean, maybe private moments or intimate moments that he did talk about You it? know,
4: I think with Lighty, you know, understanding the stigma and him being so powerful. And also just the, his personality. Like, Lighty was there to make sure everything was okay and good for you. And he was not there for you to make sure he was okay. Like that was just his role. From being six years old and being told that he was the man of the house, right? You no, know, how how wide are you? You know, to ignore your own discomfort for the benefit of others. So I don't think he ever felt comfortable. Um, you know, you hear this exchange that he had with D Nice, and all he said was, to D Nice is, "I don't, I don't feel good," right and i think that's probably as far as he could go with sharing that with anybody, you know what i'm saying, even his closest friends. That's not something he, you know, i would feel comfortable still sharing with a lot of people.
3: Right, yeah, i mean, you put a a happy face on and Yeah,
4: you're... i mean, I, I mean, isn't that what we all do? And i think, you know, there's still that that chasm that we have to overcome where we don't view, you know, therapy and mental self-care as just being this Luxury for white people. You right, know what I mean? Right. Especially
3: in... It's funny, because especially in New York City, where you walk down the street and you hear open conversations about going to therapists, yeah. right? I mean, it's like... So it doesn't seem like it would have this stigma anymore, but it's amazing that it still does.
4: But when you're in the hood... Right. You don't right. hear that. Right. Right. You right. don't hear these conversations at all. Right. When you're in the hood, you definitely don't hear about that. Right. True. I mean, that's like a mid and, and you And you know, I'm not even saying that you... In the hood or in the black communities that we don't have the luxury of of mental care, but we just don't have the luxury of taking that that break even, of focusing on that because it's really our you know our mission to survive is such at a higher rate, right? It's a higher level. You know what I mean?
3: Do you think there is a movement with the younger generation to? I think so. I definitely
4: think so. I think it's you know you you know there's more discussion of it and um, the fact that we're even discussing it right now. Whereas I don't think 10 years ago, that we, anybody would be discussing the, the issue of mental health and hip-hop.
3: Right. Overall, what was your I know biggest takeaway? Or what did you learn that you did not know? Uh, and your favorite thing you learned from the Chris Lighty story?
4: Um, you know, I have children. Um, I'm going through a divorce. And what I learned about Chris Lighty, and it also actually humbled me and inspired me at the same time which is how committed he was to his kids. It seems like everything he went through, you know, him being a young father and you know, at 17 and and being forced to take his daughter with him everywhere, studio sessions, shows, like right. The Office like just really his commitment really made me reevaluate you know how much more committed I need to be with my kids. Not that I'm not committed, but it was just like this guy like everything it seems that he did, like he gets punched in the mouth, and his his tooth is missing. He's like, I don't want my daughter to see this. It's just it's humbling, you know what I mean?
3: Right, I mean, like the first reaction, like, where's DMX?
4: Yeah, where's DMX, or how much am I getting paid? But he's like, I'm not going home.
3: Uh, yeah, right. Like this. Wow. He's Reggie Jose, aka Combat Jack. Yes, sir. Uh, new documentary mogul, the life and death of Chris Lighty, with loudspeakers. i Gimlet. Uh, Reggie, thank
4: you so much for joining me. Thank in the you so much, man. I really enjoyed this
1: What's Chris Lighty if he wasn't such a baby. What is a woman if she didn't say maybe Baby laid down. I removed the frown. What would be my penal core if it wasn't brown? What is a paper without a president? What is a compound without an element? What is a jam if you don't spike the punch? what's a brewski if you don't bite brunch? Ooh, it's like that you keep going freak, freak girl cause you know that we showing what to go 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 what?
4: Thank you, man. What's up, Internets? What's going on, man?
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or.